Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Good morning. If you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 19. Dude, I hope you're ready to have your world rocked this morning. Are you ready? Let's go, man. God wants to change and transform our lives. And after last week and us inviting the Holy Spirit to come and fall upon us, uh, we were in for a great treat here in the book of Acts this morning where we find really one of the greatest revivals that happens in the midst of the church. And uh, God has just been wrecking me in a beautiful way this last week as I've considered this this verse and or these, these verses and how it relates to my own personal life. The title of my message is When Revival Comes. Stand with me and we're going to read our verses together this morning. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8, it says, And when and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We believe, and your word declares, that it is active and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. That it is a discerner of the soul and spirit and the heart. And we ask you this morning, Father, that you would speak to our hearts. God, that we would leave here changed and transformed people. That your spirit would make your word alive to us this morning, God. If we have slipped into a place of complacency in our walk with you, that you would come down from heaven and that you would invade the dark places of our hearts and revive us this morning, God. Our prayer, Lord, is that we leave different. And we can if we allow your spirit to speak to us and we are obedient to what he instructs us to do. We pray that you would... Father, prepare our hearts for communion as we remember the great price that was was paid on our behalf by your son Jesus, that he died and rose again from the dead. He gave his body to be sacrificed and he spilt his blood on our behalf. And we ask you, Father, to just help us this morning to be grateful people. You've done so much. And Lord, we want to grow in you. So help us, we pray now. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. Hey, when, before Billy Graham died, he was asked the question, what do you think the most important thing for the church is today? What, do you, what is the most important thing the modern day church needs? And he replied like this. He said, I'm convinced the single greatest need in most churches today is spiritual revival for a renewed commitment to Jesus Christ and a greater desire to do his will regardless of the, of the cost. I think that Billy Graham was absolutely right relating to what the greatest need of the church is today. The modern day church has become deluded with spiritual apathy rooted in worldliness and humanism. I don't say this lightly, but reality is that many in the church today are more concerned about their own personal uh, comfort, ease, and pleasure than they are about the glory of the great king that God sent, about the magnification of God our Father about the obedience of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So many lack care for the lost and the hurting. And that happens because we're blinded by our own selfish pursuits. Seeking the presence of God has become more an event than it is a lifestyle in the church these days. Sadly, many believers will never fully experience the presence of God because their sin has separated them from God. I don't know if you are aware of this, but even as a believer, sin separates you from God. You break your fellowship with God when you sin. For the unbeliever, someone who hasn't come to Christ, they're separated from God from the start. We, reckon, we are reconciled with the God of heaven through his son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for our sins. He spilt his blood for us so that we could be reconciled to the Father. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But as believers, as we operate here in this world and we continue to mess up, anybody mess up in, the, in this place today? Just a couple of you, so you're all liars, so you can just, 
But, but reality is we all mess up. What happens when we mess up? What happens? Well, there's a break in fellowship with God. There's a break in fellowship with God. That's, this is what John is explaining in the book of 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. He said, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The reality of it is that if we are walking in darkness, if we are sinning and there's unrepentance in our heart, that we are not in fellowship with God. What brings us back into fellowship with God is repentance. Do you know repentance ultimately is, is a practice for believers, really? It's ultimately a practice for believers to be reconciled to, not reconciled to God, but be placed back in right fellowship with God. Believers need to be, recon, or need to be uh, placed back in right fellowship with God through repentance. John goes on to tell us this. This is the remedy for our problem here. He tells us in 1 John 1, 9, just a few verses later, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Aren't you glad that it doesn't say, well, you're just stuck? Aren't you glad that there's no, he doesn't say there's no hope for you? But yet there's a remedy for your break in fellowship with God, and it's called Repentance. Just to confess your sins to him, to turn your heart back to him. So why are so few uh, unrepentant in the church today? It isn't because the Spirit of God isn't convicting people of this. It's because people are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Revival requires repentance revival requires repentance. I don't know if you've been praying for revival in your own personal walk, but if you're unrepentant, you're not going to get it. Revival requires repentance. It requires an invasion of God into your heart, into those dark places where he wipes you and he brings those things out so that you confess them to him so that you can be put right in, back into right fellowship with God. That's his desire for you. Man, I am set ablaze this morning because God is wrecking me in this way. Man, I'm confessing my sin to God. God is turning his heart back to me. I'm turning my heart back to him, rather. And it's just an amazing thing that he's doing in my life. And I don't want to leave this place. I want to stay right here. Listen, if you're not there this morning, get there. Get there. God is inviting you into a deeper relationship with him this morning. He wants to be so intimate with you, but here's the reality is if you're not repentant, you won't experience it. Really, he's taken the steps towards you. The question is, will you respond? Will you respond to him this morning? Will you give him all that you have to give him this morning, including your filthy rags, your dirty laundry, all of that? He wants it all. He wants it all. He wants, to just, he wants you to just come clean with him this morning. And if you'll do that, you will experience spiritual revival. This is what Billy Graham was, was, or, or what, um, Billy Graham was talking about. Uh, it was J. Edwin Orr, who is the scholar, pastor, and revivalist, who explained revival in this way. He said, revival is not some emotion or worked-up excitement. It is rather an invasion from heaven which brings a conscious awareness of God. When the people of God have a conscious awareness of God, you know what happens? Repentance. That's what happens. When you, when you come into the presence of God and you understand you're in the presence of God, and we, we all would say we understand that this morning, but our responses would say we don't. Because when we are in the present consciousness of God, it, re it requires us to bow low. It requires us to confess our sin. And so most of us, what we do is we sort of get there, but not really. We kind of live in that place, but not really. He has so much more for you, and he desires that for you. Listen, what I know is this, that revival will not come to the heart of a person who has little desire to experience it. It will not come to your heart if you don't want it. But if you do want it, I can guarantee you, and that's a big thing on my part. I have no power to do this, but I believe the word of God says that I have authority to say this, that I can guarantee you it will happen. I can guarantee you that if you turn your heart to God and you ask him 
to invade your heart, he will. He absolutely will. Why can I say that with confidence? Because that's his will. That is his absolute will for your life, to be the most intimate thing in your life, to be the one thing that sits on the throne, the one thing that you, you, the, the affections of your heart, everything that you are towards him. That's his desire for you. And a person that is in that place can expect to be wrecked in a beautiful way. Revival is essentially like a wrecking ball of holiness that just comes on in and it just wrecks you in a beautiful way and I love it. But, uh, you know, in preparation for my message, I was reading about the revivals, the past revivals and how God has moved in just incredible ways through the people of God who just begin to seek the holiness of God and his presence and such and how he just just came upon these people. And one of them, uh, you're probably familiar with the Welsh revival of 1904. Interesting enough, Wales at the time uh, uh, was in a kind of a similar place I think Christianity is today. Said so the Christians in Wales were consumed with worldlyism and humanism. One pastor described the spiritual condition of the church in this way. He said, while the church sleeps, the enemy busily sows tares among the wheat. Nothing short of an outpouring of the, of the spirit from on high will uproot them and save our land from, listen to this, becoming prey to atheism and ungodliness. Is that not the state we're in as a, as a country? A state of atheism and ungodliness? Well, a small group of pastors begin to pray for revival in Welsh and the first pastor that was touched with revival was a guy named Joseph Jenkins who, who led a church in Newquay. He organized a conference in January of 1904 and touched an evangelist by the name of Seth Joshua who influenced a, a, a young man, a young minor, 26 years old, and a Methodist Academy student named Evan Roberts. And it was on the morning of September 29th that Seth Joshua concluded his message to these Methodist students by saying these words in Welsh, Lord, bend us. That, would hit, that was the way that he ended his message, Lord, bend us. When Roberts, Evan Roberts, heard those words, the Holy Spirit immediately said to him, that is what you need. That is what you need. And he received the word of God there, and he began to pray, Oh, Lord, bend me. Oh, Lord, bend me. The next meeting was scheduled for the next day at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Seth Joshua gave the students an opportunity to begin to pray out loud. So various students were praying and such. And uh, Evan Roberts, it tells us that he knelt with his arms stretched out, perspiration soaking his shirt as he agonized over committing himself to God. Finally, he prayed out Loud, bend me, bend me, bend me. Later that day, Seth Joshua, who was, by the way, very faithful to pin down important things that happened in his meetings with people. It says that he pinned in his journal uh, the experience that Evan Roberts had as he began to pray, bend me. Later, uh, the, the motto of the Welch revival became bend the church and save the world. Bend the church and save the world. That needs to be the motto of the church in our day and age, folks. Bend us, God. What does that mean? The idea is you're clay on a will and God is forming and fashioning you. It's saying, God, your will be done in my life. We'll say that. We'll say, God, your will be done in my life, but then oftentimes we do whatever we want. That's not the idea of this. The idea is, Lord, I'm wholly yours. I'm wholly yours. You can't come to Christ any other way, can you? You can't come to Christ unless you wholly give yourself over to him. And listen, you'll never experience revival unless you wholly give yourself over to him and his will. And the evidence of that is your obedience to him. The evidence of that becomes your obedience to that. This this revival affected hundreds of thousands of people as the Lord used just a few people who were praying and crying out to God, revive us, God, bend our heart towards you. There was another person you might know, a young evangelist um, who experienced a, an incredible spiritual revival in 1949. 
in the mountains of San Bernardino at a place called Forest Home College by the preaching of a guy named J. Edwin Orr, who I quoted earlier. I would encourage you, if you're not familiar with J. Edwin Orr, that you would grab his book, Full Surrender, and you would read it. Uh, and it, it, he talks about, he, he talks about the, just the absolute need that church needs to be desperate for God, desperate for the Holy Spirit and, um, and such, and just full surrender to him. Well, at, at this place, he was paired with another speaker who was there in, in all, almost like his last hurrah. He, he had really come to a place where he said, I'm about ready to full, th- throw in the towel. I'm not sure I even really believe in the word of God. Do you know who that was? His name was Billy Graham. He showed up at Forest Home College completely wrecked spiritually. Young evangelist, not really experiencing the things that he thought that God had for him. And he was not hearing from God. And he's a speaker at the conference that goes to show you just because a person stands in the pulpit doesn't mean that they're experiencing the presence of God. He had a place of dryness in his walk, and that happens. It was J. Edwin Orr and his preaching on spiritual revival that struck a chord in Billy Graham's heart. Later, one night in the evening, about 1 a.m., Billy Graham uh, met J. Edwin Orr outside. They were talking, and, and they spent about 30 minutes talking about, you know, the, the really Billy Graham's situation and where he's at with the Lord and such. And J. Edwin Ward just said, dude, you just need to surrender. I'm pretty sure he called him dude. I'm not 100% on that, <laughs> but I think he might have. But anyway, uh, he said, you need to surrender to God. That's what you need to do. Billy Graham took a walk into the woods. Apparently, there's a rock there somewhere that he laid his Bible down on. And he said, God... If your word is true, show me. And he just began to ask God questions. All his doubts, all the things that were going on in his life, he just laid them out before God, and he just humbled himself before the Lord, and he came back a changed and transformed person. The Lord, in that moment, gave Billy Graham a vision of uh, of a, a revival that he was going to lead, uh, a crusade that he was going to start, and it was going to start in L.A., And he comes back after five or so hours of spending time with God, and J. Edwin Orr happens to be up, and so he tells him of the experience, and he says, God just gave me a vision of hundreds of thousands of people that I'm going to be speaking to in L.A. And J. Edwin Orr said, well, that's pretty... uh, Pretty enthusiastic of you. Okay, well, you know, he said he was kind of like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I, I'm, I, he had an experience with God and praise the Lord for that. I'm not 100% on what he's saying though. Guess what? September of 1949, that happened. The very first crusade of Billy Graham happened in LA. 350,000 people showed up to a man that was unknown really. To a man that really, uh, you know, didn't have the clout to pull like that, but the Lord was in it. It was the Lord doing the work. And Billy Graham, he said these words relating to what he experienced that night at Forest Home College. He said, I sensed the presence and the power of God as I had not sensed in months. Not all my questions were answered, but I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. Hey, are you struggling today? Are you not hearing from God? Do you feel like you're in a desert place? Seek him. Just seek him. Surrender to him. Go to him. Ask him those questions. Don't slip into a place of complacency in your life and just exist there. That's not his will for your life. He wants to, he wants to have a relationship with you. That means you come to him and you lay those things out before him. He's faithful, man, to speak into your life. He desires to use you, but he also requires uh, surrender on your part. Well, you know, revival has come in the hearts of many people over the history of Christianity. God has done amazing things in the hearts of many, many people. And uh, I think he does an amazing thing, perhaps one of the most amazing revivals we find in the Bible. I would say outside of Ezra and Nehemiah and the children of Israel coming back into um, 
Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity and they hear the word of God, they're cut to the heart. They can't even stand before God. They're just so broken before when they hear the word of God go forward. That's what revival looks like. That's what it looks like. It's people broken before the word of God, repentant before the word of God. But, uh, but here we find this also in the book of Acts chapter 19, and God is using the apostle Paul. There's five things I want to show you in this text relating, relating to when revival comes. The first thing is, notice that revival is tied to the preaching of the word. Verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in disbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, if you missed last week, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't understand that Paul is in Ephesus now. He's followed the footsteps of Apollos. He is now here in this place. At, when he came into Ephesus on the, his third missionary journey, he had an encounter with some disciples that needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so he baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus. He lays hands on them. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. And that's an important delineation with the relationship with the Holy Spirit. If you missed it, go back and listen to it. The upon experience of the Holy Spirit. Not the inexperienced. They already had him inside. They needed him to come upon them to be empowered to do ministry. Well, Luke tells us that after this, Paul goes into the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly. And I want you to hone in on the word boldly. Do you know that is, in, that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the boldness of the Spirit of God? It came upon the church in Acts chapter 4. They prayed, the place was shook, and they went on speaking boldly in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul was emboldened by the Spirit of God. This isn't just his personal passion relating to the gospel. This is an inspired boldness from the Holy Spirit. And for three months, he reasoned and persuaded uh, with the Jews there uh, in the synagogue relating to the kingdom of God. Now, this isn't the first time they've heard from Paul. At the tail end of his second missionary journey as he's heading to Jerusalem, he stops in this same synagogue probably, and he speaks about... Um, he speaks to them about the word of God. Remember, they are interested. They want to know more, but he has to leave. And so he says, hey, I can't stay, but Lord willing, if I, I, he, I, I'll come back if, if the Lord wills. And, of course, the Lord did will. So for three months he spent that time, and the idea of reasoning and persuading is it's a conversation. People are asking questions. You know, well, how do you know Jesus is the Messiah? Well, it tells us here, Isaiah 53, this is what's going to happen. And he goes through all of these Old Testament prophecies relating to the Messiah. He's revealing that Jesus Christ is the one that they've been waiting for, but he didn't come the way they thought he would. And so it tells us after a period of time, they become stubborn in the ESV version. Literally, that word means they became hard-hearted. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but when the word of God goes forward, you're responsible for what you hear. And if you don't respond to what you hear, what happens is there's a little bit of a hardness that starts to happen. And as you hear the message over and over and over again, more hardness comes and more hardness comes. For three months, they've been hearing, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah. And every time they hear it, because they're walking in unbelief, they will not receive it. Their hearts become more hardened towards it. And that will happen to you. You can do your daily devotions. You can open the word of God and you can read it like a normal book. And you go, oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah. What an interesting story. And you don't receive anything that it has to say to you, but you're responsible for what you read. You're responsible for the information that the Lord has been given to you. And his desire is that you would apply that to your life because it's what's best for you. But the more you hear the word and the less you do with it, the more hardened you become to it. Your senses become dull. Your spiritual senses become dull. Your, your hearing of the Lord becomes dull. Are you not hearing from God today? Maybe it's because you have a hardened heart and you've not been responding to the word as it's been going forward. You've been rejecting the Holy Spirit. You've quenched the Holy Spirit. You, uh, you, you know, you, you're not listening to what he has to say. Well, 
Hey, listen, if that's you this morning, the remedy is simple. Repent. Just tell him, Lord, I'm sorry for not responding to you. I'm sorry for not listening to you. Do you know in the Welsh revival, when the Spirit fell upon the people, uh, many people began just confessing, Lord, I'm sorry that I didn't go to India. When you called me to go to India, I'll go now. And people just began to respond to the words that they were receiving from the Lord, but they were walking in disobedience towards. And so it's such an amazing thing. But these guys were unwilling to yield to the Spirit, yield to the truth. And so they continued in unbelief. It's a choice. It's an absolute choice. You can continue in unbelief if you want to. God doesn't want you to, but you can. It's a horrible choice, by the way. And it tells us because of the condition of their heart, where they were relating to the Messiah, that they begin to speak evil about the way. The way is a reference to Christianity. Um, It's interesting that the first time that we ever hear Christianity called the way is in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And who is the one that's speaking evil about the way in that passage? The very person that's speaking the gospel to these Jews here, the Apostle Paul. Isn't that interesting? It tells us here, Acts 9, 1 through 2, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. If anybody understands the heart condition of these Jews, it's the Apostle Paul. He's been there and done that. He's been hard-hearted. He's rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so what's interesting about that is Paul knows where they are, and he knows what they need. It took an invasion of Jesus, an invasion of heaven, for him to come to a place where he bowed his knee, and he just looked at this situation, and he goes... They're hard-hearted. They need an invasion. They need an encounter with Jesus. The Lord is responsible for them. I'm not. What Paul was responsible for were the disciples that were in the midst of that synagogue that had come to Christ that were hearing these people speaking evil about the way. And so as he heard that, he said, it's time for us to go. It tells us here that he withdrew them and took the disciples with him. Uh, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Paul didn't leave Ephesus. He left the synagogue. He knew that God had opened an incredible door of ministry for him there in Ephesus, but he knew that there would be, he knew it would also uh, create a lot of adversity and that he would have enemies relating to that. He writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. He said, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So rather than moving on, he moved out of the synagogue into a hall known as Tyrannus, which is also to say tyrant. It could be translated tyrant. Now, we don't know why it's called the Hall of the Tyrant. could be the name of the person that owns it, or it could be the headmaster of the school that meets in there. I feel sorry for Headmaster Lamaster, who's going to be here in Calvary Chapel Christian School. Uh, you know, hopefully he's not referred to as a tyrant, but... Um, But Paul rented this hall there in Ephesus, and he rented it at a time when all of the city would be shut down. So the way that Ephesus operated is people went to work in the morning until 11 a.m. They went home. This this was begin the the hardest part of part of the day from 11 a.m. to 4 4 p.m. and uh, they would take a siesta. It was the culture that they lived in. If you ever been to Spain, they still kind of do this. It's so bizarre. My brother and I went over there for business one time, and, and the, the guy's like, well, we can't meet at 2 o'clock because I'll be at home with my family. I'm like, dude, what do you mean? Yeah, we have to take a siesta. I go, dude, take your siesta later. We, got, we came from America, dude. We're Americans. We don't siesta. What is all that? No, I'm just kidding, but that's not what we said. He met with us, but, um, but, but so that's what happened. So Paul figured, hey, I could take this time that the school is not being used, and I can... I can disciple people through it. So that's what he did. Paul, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce tells us that more people were sleeping at, um, at 1 p.m. in Ephesus than 1 a.m. That's the way the culture was. It was, a, it was a nighttime city and such. But So Paul taught the word of God for four or five hours a day for two years straight, just faithful to teach the word of God. And the response to that was it tells us that the entire region of Asia was reached with the gospel, not by Paul, 
but by people who were coming to the hall of Tyrannus, being affected by the gospel, and then going back out and taking the gospel into the world. And it was a result of the discipleship that was taking place here. Hey, do you know that's what we're doing here today? It's discipleship. The Bible tells us, Ephesians 4.12, we're, you know, my job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And then your job is to go out and do the ministry, whatever it is that God puts in before you. Go and evangelize the world. I, I'm not, that's also my call as well, but that's what we're doing here. We're gathering together, be refilled, re-inspired by the Holy Spirit to go back out and tell somebody about Jesus. That's why we're gathering together and to, to glorify the God, God and to worship him and those sorts of things. But that's what was happening here. This is like a school. And what's happened is really churches become an event that people show up to and it's not really life impacting because in a lot of churches, the word's not even taught. How are you going to give people the whole counsel of God if you're not taught the whole counsel of God? That's why I love verse-by-verse -verse teaching because you're responsible for the whole counsel of God. And Paul said, I give, he gave his disciples the whole counsel of God. That's the model of the new church. We give, New Testament church, we give the whole counsel of God. And uh, so as a result of this, places like Colossae, the church was established, Hierapolis, uh, the six churches, including Ephesus being the seventh, uh, there in Revelation 2 and 3, all established probably from this one moment, this two years of time that Paul took to disciple believers in Ephesus, and they all went out into these areas, and churches were established. Listen, when the word of God is being taught faithfully, church uh, the world will be convicted because the church will be strengthened and emboldened to go out and share the gospel. And that's what we're called to do, folks. God was on the move in the city of Ephesus. It's prime for revival. Um, and uh, so we'll see that that does take place. Well, not only is revival tied to the preaching of the word of God, but it's also, during revival, it's sometimes accompanied with extraordinary miracles. Look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away uh, to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Notice the phrase here, and God was doing. Super, super important. And God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. It's not, and Paul was doing extraordinary miracles. No, it was God doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. The reason why that's important is because all miracles come from God. There's not a single person in the world that could produce a miracle outside of the will of God. You understand that? Like, you couldn't just, these guys, and this also tells us the apostles did not have at-will authority to produce miracles. It was God who did the miracles through the apostles. So this whole idea of us walking in the authority of Christ and such and just can create these miracles out of nothing is nonsense. The reality of it is, is uh, miracles come as a result of the will of God and the faith of man, and it's tied to both. You can't separate them in the Bible. There is faith that has to come. You have to believe that God is capable and that he wants to heal. And so you pray by faith for healing, for demons to come out or whatever it is. The authority, you know, you're putting your authority in Jesus Christ and his capacity to do anything. But it also has to be the will of God. It has to line up with his plan for every individual person. And that's the way this works. It was God doing extraordinary. That word in the ESV could be, it could be translated unusual miracles. They were unusual miracles. And it's important we understand that because this, these weren't things that happened all the time. And so, as believers, that means that we don't put into practice unusual miracles. In other words, we're not just, well, we're going to start an apron and uh, handkerchief ministry here at our church. We're going to pray over them, and we're going to send them out. Uh, do you know what, what the handkerchief was for Paul? It was his sweatband. Literally. He probably was at work, you know, tent making, taking care of himself in the morning or whatnot uh, before he went to Bible study, and somebody came and said, Paul, this person's sick. They need you to 
they need you to come and pray over them. Will you come pray over them? He's like, dude, I can't. I'm so busy right now. Here, just take this. And he like gives them his sweaty sweatband. And they're like, what? Okay. Here, Paul said, put this on. And he's like, dude, this thing's all wet. Yeah, it's his sweat. It's okay, though. You're going to be healed in Jesus' name. <laughs> Could you imagine? And then he said, dude, just take my apron, man. I can't do that right now. Just take the apron and go. It's quite funny, I think. But how impactful is this? I want you to understand that the, um, the miracle itself wasn't contained in the handkerchief and the apron. You know that, right? It was contained in the faith of the person who would just receive it. So, in other words, we shouldn't have a handkerchief and apron ministry. Right? It was just something that God did. What, what I'll tell you is that in revival, though, God does unusual things. He does unusual things. And so the church oftentimes standing back as the judge is like, well, that's not biblical. Uh, you know, that's not in the Bible. Well, is God allowed to do things that aren't in the Bible when he's moving in a specific way? Is he allowed to do those things? It's not to say that everything that's done in these moments also is from God, because that is also not the case. How do we know? Where's the discernment relating to that? I would say it all points back to who's being elevated through whatever is happening and what the effects are of that later. Like, in other words, if God is magnified and people are confessing their sins and they're coming to Christ and all of these kinds of things are happening, I would say that's of God. The devil doesn't do that kind of stuff. God does that stuff. You know, when Ashbury happened here in 2023 in February, and, you know, it, it was kind of interesting to sit back and watch the church respond to that. Wasn't it? It's kind of like people were like, hmm, I don't know if that's God or not. I mean, dude, people were repenting of their sin. Is that the devil? Uh, people were coming to Christ. Is that the devil? Now, I'm not saying everything that happened there was of the Lord, but it seems to me that the Holy Spirit was moving in that. I mean, who am I to, I'm just seeing the effects of what's happened there. And we'll know longer term as testimonies come out about that moment, you know, of what happened there, what God was doing. But man, if we become so hard-hearted towards the Spirit of God and, and you know, kind of judgmental relating to the way that God is supposed to do it, then who's Lord? I think we have to yield to him and say, Lord, if this is of you, reveal yourself in these moments. Do what you want to do. This moment here reminds me of the same kind of thing of the woman with the, the issue of blood. Remember, she said, oh, if only I could touch the hem of Jesus' robe, then I'd be healed. Or the person that said, man, if only Peter's shadow could fall on me, then I would be delivered from these demons. It's the same idea. These aren't things we put into practice in the church. You know, number one, I hope that you would never, ever think that my shadow could do anything because, man, it, all it, can, it can't do anything. I, 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 know, I know you know that already, so I didn't even have to say that. But, um, but it was just an unusual thing that God did to draw people to himself and to bring glory to his name. And um, so I love the way David Guzik explained this. He said, we should receive whatever is proven to be from the hand of God. <laughs> but we pursue only that which we have a biblical pattern for. And I think that is absolutely right. I think we just, we, we, I think this, this is erring on the side of caution relating to miracles and such. And I think that's a, a good way to do it. It's not, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm unbelieving, but it's, Lord, I don't want to step into error. But I believe you can do anything. So do what you want. And then the evidence of that, if it's your hand, who's being elevated, and what are the effects of that? That's the way I judge those things based on your word. Well, uh, God does certainly do unusual things in this miracle. And we see that in this moment, how this draws, uh, draws not only uh, negative attention, but also positive attention. What do I mean? Well, with revival, the one thing that you can expect is spiritual warfare. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of, Jewish, the, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and outpowered them. So 
uh, that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, uh, it's so interesting what happens here is the move of God begins to happen. These, uh, God is doing amazing things through this school and stuff. The enemy shows up, and he always will. He always will show up. He will always try and thwart what God is doing. And God, you know, being 100% sovereign, allows that. He allows that at times. And so here we find these, these young, these, uh, these sons of Sceva. We don't know who he is. He, there is no Jewish high priest named Sceva, by the way. So who knows if he just said he was or where that came from. We don't know. But here these guys are itinerant Jewish exorcists. They travel around with their little exorcist bags. And they're like, does anybody need demon casts out of them? You know, that's, we're here for that. For a fee, we'll do it for you, you know, kind of thing. And, um. And so it tells us that they came across this man that had evil spirits within them. And they, they tried to use the name of Jesus to cast the demon out because they saw the effects of the handkerchiefs and the aprons that were, demons were coming out of people as a result of that. And they thought, well, they knew it wasn't the power of the handkerchief or the apron. They knew it was the power of the name of Jesus. So they said, well... I adjure you uh, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, you know. And, uh, and it was a common practice, by the way, in this, in this world to invoke the name of a more powerful spirit in an attempt to expel demons. So they adopted the name Jesus into their little uh, ceremony that they would do. And it didn't work out for them because here's what happens is the demon possessed, uh, the demon speaking through the man says, Jesus I know and Paul I know but you, who are you? And it tells us that they go on to get the tar beat out of them and strip naked and, and they, they end up fle- fleeting the scene. I happen to have, and this became known to all in that area. I have a clip from the Ephesian Times here of this event. And um, it tells us, the caption under that says, man with evil spirit kicks butt on the seven sons of Sceva leaving all seven battered and naked. So there you go. The moral of the story of this, by the way, is that you can't claim authority in the name of Jesus if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You can't claim the power of Jesus if you're not in personal relationship with Jesus. That's not the way it works. You can't just, his name is not just something that we can just use, you know, flippantly, regardless of who we are. We have to be in personal relationship with him and then his name becomes power in our, in our lives and we can utilize his name. It's actually, it's a right. It's a right by way of salvation to use the name of Jesus. God has gifted you with that capacity but not just everybody can do that and that is the point of this. This really backfires on the enemy, by the way. Look at what happens in verse 17. And this became known to all the residents in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That would be the equivalent of about $5.5 million today. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. One of the uh, purest elements of spiritual revival is the renunciation of sin. This is one of the purest elements of spiritual revival, people casting their sins upon the Lord, upon the cross, asking God for forgiveness. And that's what we see here um, as we recognize that everybody in Ephesus saw what happened or heard what happened relating to these Jewish exorcists. They understood there was uh, an evil presence. They understood there was a demonic uh, spiritual realm at work amongst their their city, and it tells us they also knew that there was power in the name of Jesus and that he was over all these things. So it tells us great fear fell upon these people. They understood where the power lies. They understood who it is that they should put their faith in. And when they did that, they just began to spontaneously praise God to extol him. You know, that's also 
something that happens in revivals oftentimes is, is that it becomes more of an intimate prayer meeting and a praise session than really a time of Bible study. That's what revivals look like if you study them in the past. That's kind of the way it works is, you know, the word of God goes forward first. People's hearts are prepared. People then, God's spirit falls and then people begin to praise God. They begin to pray and confess and all these kinds of things. And that's exactly what happens in Ephesus. Not only did the fear of God fall upon the people, which I would say, God, please may your fear fall on your church again. May we have a proper fear of who you are. And again, that happens when we have a conscious understanding of the presence of God in our life. But then it tells us that they, they did praise the Lord, but they also renounced their sins. It tells us here that um, many came. Now, now believers came. It's important you understand that believers came. Believers came, what, confessing and divulging their practices. People began to publicly uh, confess their sins in, this, in, the, in these gatherings or whatever, wherever they were. People began to confess their sins, to divulge their practices, their daily life, the thing that was going on in their lives. That is also an element that happens in revival. People began to publicly confess, Lord, I've blown it before. Anybody ever blown it in here before? There's just a couple of you, so the rest of you are liars, so you just blew it. If, if you were hoping you could get to heaven on your good works, you just blew it. I'm sorry, but, but seriously, we all blow it. Therefore, we all need to repent. We all need to do these things. Believers were coming. It's not abnormal here. My, my point is to, to tell you that in our culture, I, I do think that some people think like, well, I'm not. There is the, uh, the, the doctrine of sinless perfection, which we don't ascribe to. We don't believe that you can become perfect in this life. We believe that we're trapped in the body of death until Christ comes and releases us from this. Yeah, we've been born again and we have a new spirit in us, but that, the Bible tells us that it's the spirit of God that wars against the spirit of the flesh, right? So there's a war going on between us. We all have two personalities. <laughs> uh, some of you have way more than that, but just a couple for most of us. But, and we're at war. There's an enemy within you, and it's the flesh it wants to devour you. But these guys were coming and confessing not only that, but it tells us that people were turning from their wicked ways. They were practicing magic, and so they were bringing their, their books and such, and they were burning books. Now, I'm not a proponent of book burning, but here's what I'll tell you is that if you have things, when you, when you came to Christ, you have things from your old life that carry some sort of spiritual connection, and most things uh, do, by the way, in terms of, think of music, you ever listen to the music you used to listen to before you got saved? You're like, oh man, I'm gonna go back and listen to this song, and I'm like, yeah, wait, what, what, what is, what is he saying? Oh my gosh, I had no idea. That's what that song. What am I listening to? Kid, close your ears, cover your eyes. I don't know. I had a friend that got saved, and he had thousands of dollars worth of. I'm not a hundred percent if they were eight tracks or CDs or records or you know cassette tapes, they definitely weren't MP3s or beyond, right? So they did, he wasn't streaming. This was a long time ago. But he had thousands of dollars of this stuff. And he said, dude, I'm going to burn them. And I go, bro, why are you going to burn those? You know, this was early on in my walk. I was like, why don't you sell those things? At least you could get some money for them. And he goes, and he said something that I'll never forget. He said, why would I transfer something that the enemy has used in my life to bring demonic presence in people's lives when, uh, you know, for a little bit of money. And I thought, whoa. Because do you know music is incredibly spiritual? The enemy uses music in a huge way. And I talked about this before. Your emotions change when you listen to music. You can get sad, mad, whatever. You can, a lot of different emotions that go through that. There is a spiritual, there's something there in the music realm that the enemy can use. We're not even going to get into frequencies and all that kind of stuff. Because I'll blow your mind, folks. <laughs> but reality is that there's a lot of things in our past that maybe carry some spiritual, uh, you know, connection. And I'm not to say that, you know, that's why it's important that we, we, we are aware of the things that we allow in our home. 
that we don't let, you know, are you letting stuff in your home that doesn't belong, that's not elevating and glorifying the God? I'll be first to say I have. And, you know, this teaching here really rocked me and what I'm going to be viewing moving forward, you know, because I'll tell you what you view matters. I was just having dinner with the Fergusons a couple days ago, and I was telling them, you guys ever watch, uh, uh, um, you know, Dave Portnoy, Barstool guy, he does uh, pizza reviews? Whatever reason, this came on my, my uh, YouTube feed. So I started watching a ton of them. One bite, everybody knows the rules, and he's out beside this bar or whatever, this uh, pizza joint, and he's doing a review of pizza. Guess what? After about two days of watching hundreds of these things, I'm like, dude, I'm like, dude, I want pizza so bad. I just want pizza so bad right now. I'm like, and I'm like, and now every time I see a pizza review on my thing, I'm like, God, please help me. Don't let me... I can't eat pizza, Lord. It's wrong, Lord. Help me. You know, because it feeds your desires, doesn't it? And I've said this. I used cupcakes as the same example. Watching Cupcake Wars over and over again. Man, I want cupcakes so bad. Oh. What you allow in your house affects you, believe it or not. I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus. I don't care how spiritual you are. It does affect you. So just be conscious of that. I'm not going to tell you what to watch and not, not watch. I know for me what I need to be aware of. And you should know for you what you need to be aware of and what you should not allow in your home. These people were turning to the Lord and it tells us that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Well, what I can tell you about revival is that, um, you know, revival, lastly, can always be rejected. People can always choose not to be part of it. And here's what we find in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he helped, he, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in the similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all the, of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And so what happens is the reformation of Ephesus creates a problem economically for these tradesmen, these silversmiths, those people that are making shrines. One guy named Demetrius recognizes what's happening, and he says, whoa, whoa, dude, have you checked the numbers lately? Sales are down in a massive way. We need to do something about this. So he gets the guild, the silversmiths, and all those people who are making trinkets related, relating to the goddess of Diana or Artemis and the temple and such. And he goes, dudes, we got a serious problem here. This Paul is telling people that the god of Artemis is not a real god because any god made with hands is not a real god. That wasn't what Paul was saying. Paul didn't roll into Ephesus and go, Dude, my message is going to be about how they shouldn't worship Artemis. That's, that wasn't his message at all. His message is, you need Jesus. And the result of people understanding their need for Jesus is they stopped worshiping Artemis. He didn't set up shop in front of, uh, you know, this great temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, in this culture and go, I'm going to just stand here and preach against Artemis. No, he shared the gospel. He shared the gospel message. And it's important that we understand that because if we want to see our culture changed, we're, we, don't, uh, we don't jump on bandwagons relating to sin and start standing and start speaking about, oh, it's the LBGT community, it's the transgender community, it's the drunkards, it's the adulteresses, it's this or that or whatever. We preach the gospel. You preach the gospel, people's hearts change. But here's what I'll tell you is it doesn't mean we don't say anything about sin. 
But Paul's main message wasn't, oh, let's preach against all other gods. That's not what he was doing. He was preaching the gospel that they just needed the one God. They just needed Jesus. And because of that, the city was changed and transformed. Listen to what, it tell, it's, what, what goes on here. It says in verse 28, And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out. All these people, uh, all these tradesmen heard this, and they began to shout out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's, traveling, uh, Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands, um, wanted, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he, had, he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So there's a full-on riot ramping up in Ephesus. Uh, Demetrius has got the guilds all ramped up. Their livelihood is going down the tubes. And so the whole city now, they, they start this procession walking through the, the streets of Ephesus, shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And people just start joining in on this procession. You know how that works. People just join in. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know what, what they're part of. They just jump in the crowd and they're like, yeah, great is, you know, uh, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they get to the 24,000 feet amphitheater there, they dragged Gaius and Aristarchus. They came across them. They drugged them in, probably wanting to kill them. And half the people in this crowd don't know why they're there. They have no idea what they're doing. They're just following the crowd. Be careful who you're following. Know why you're following them. Don't just receive anything from anybody, folks. Be careful who you're following. People jumped into the midst of this. They didn't even know what they were standing for. And Paul wanting to go inside, no doubt. Hey, I'll go in there. I'll talk to these guys. Not a good idea. They probably want to kill you. And so the Lord, it tells us that um, the Jews decided in this moment it was time for them to make a differentiation between Judaism and Christianity. They keep trying to do this. So this Alexandria, we don't know much about this dude. He was probably a religious leader in Ephesus. The Jews say, hey, get up there and tell them we're not part of this. And he's like, okay. And he's trying, he, trying to calm people down. He's like, hey, uh, I'm out. And they just keep yelling. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours straight. The guy gets no opportunity. The Lord's not going to allow that to happen. He not, he's, the Lord's in control of these things. But... Look who is able to get the crowd under control. Look at the verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Listen. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers, of our goddess. They're not doing what you said they were doing. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly for we are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the town clerk is a liaison between the city council and Roman authorities. Ephesus is a free city, meaning they don't have a contingency of Roman soldiers there in the city that are ruling over things. They put uh, they, they kind of allowed Ephesus to run its own city council and things, and then they put a town clerk over them that was to be the kind of the mitigator between the city council and the Roman authorities, right? So, so what he says here is, as a result of what's happening here, my responsibility is to keep peace here. 
And so I have to judge what is happening. And he says, he tells these guys, listen, what you're doing is wrong. First and foremost, he, he points them to the legend of Artemis here. And he tells them, you know that we're the gatekeepers of Artemis here in Ephesus, that we have the sacred stone that fell. What sacred stone is that, by the way? Well, apparently, um, you know, when meteorites would fall, it had some association with Artemis here, and they would, they would call them sacred stones. It happened in multiple places where they had temples or places of worship for Artemis. And when meteors would fall, they would grab those stones. Oh, these are sacred. How stupid is that? But anyways, that's what happened. And, you know, there's no historical evidence that there was a stone there in Ephesus, but there's other than the Bible. So we know there was one. You know, we don't know where it was or it doesn't exist now. But there are other places that have them. There was a stone taken from Pessinus to Rome in 204 BC. There was also a stone found in um, Tarsus where there was a worship of Artemis. So, um, you know, there... That's all we know about that. But what he was saying is, you guys know the legend here. So just put your faith in that. The guys that came in here, Paul and Gaius and Aristarchus and such, they're not standing against the goddess Artemis. Their, their message is not about her. So stop it. If you have a problem, take it to court. There was a format that they were to follow when they had problems in that city. I love the way that he protects the Christians. Here in this moment, this is the Lord. The Lord utilizing the right, the right situation. He utilizing the authorities of the day uh, in this moment to protect the Christians. And it says, they're, they're neither sacrilegious nor blasphemies of this goddess. So if you have a problem, go take it to court. And it tells us that after he said all of this, he just said, you're dismissed. And they just went along their way. It was like the Lord used this town clerk to bring, bring peace in this moment, the, the thing the enemy was trying to rise up against. Why? Because God was massively at work in Ephesus. The Lord was doing great things in Ephesus, and the enemy was going to rise up. And I would say that, you know, I, I wouldn't... Now, obviously, the guy was concerned about... Demetrius was concerned about his wealth. And, and that could just be simply uh, the flesh acting out against Christianity. Everything that happens is not demonic, Right? Some of it is just a reality of the flesh. I would, I would count chalk this up to a fleshly thing that was going on as a result uh, of somebody who had, who, got, who their money was God. Their God was money. I was thinking like, that did not sound right. Their God was money. That's, what, that's his problem. That could be a fleshly re reality. So in other words, we're not looking for a demon around every situation. They exist, and they do work, and we see them in the passage, but also we are contending against the flesh, right? They're the flesh, and, and that, that, is, that can happen this way as well. So here we have this. Now, what is the greatest need of the church? I think it is spiritual revival, and I'll tell you, it starts with you and I here today. It starts with how we respond to what, where we are with the Lord What's God doing in your life today? What's the Lord telling you about where you are? You know, you're responsible for what you've heard. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to do something? Are you going to move from where you are to a more intimate place with God? Or are you going to stay where you are? God wants you to move. He wants you to move closer. And if you move closer you're going to see uh, his hand in your life clearer and you're going to be able to be used more for the Lord. But he won't force you to do it. Where this starts, where spiritual revival starts is it starts with a heartfelt prayer for the invasion of heaven in our hearts. Like, Lord, just come. The idea of, uh, you know, asking Lord to bend our will to his. Lord, have your way in me. Do what you want to do. Evan Roberts prayed for, at 26 years old, it happened, but for 13 years, every day, he prayed for revival. Every day. The guy wanted to see the, the Lord come down, the Spirit of God take over the church. And, and that's how we can deal with a lot of the things that we see in our culture today, guys, is just begin to pray that God would revive the church because when the church is revived and we're doing our job, the culture will transform. 
But I think some of us are expecting it to happen a different way. But you're included in, in the, the equation of what God wants to do. So it's going to start with you. And it might not start today, but I want you to remember that you have the capacity to be used by God massively. I don't think Evan Roberts was thinking, I'm going to be the head of this revival in Welch in 1904 uh, because God needs me. No, no, he just availed himself to the Lord and he said, have your way in me. Lord, bend me. May that be your prayer as well. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Father, to just take us from this place, change and transform people. And uh, we want you to bend us to your will, Lord. God, we ask you to remove any kind of unbelief in our heart about what you desire to do here. Because you want to work in great ways. You want to call people to a place of salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never come to Christ and you have never called upon his name to be saved and you recognize this morning, man, I need the Lord. I need Jesus. I want to be cleansed of my sin and I want to, uh, I, I want to spend eternity with God. Well, God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Here we're going to celebrate uh, communion here in a moment, which is the representation of what Jesus has done for us, that he tangibly came as a human being in the flesh, that he died on a cross for us as the Lamb of God, that his blood was spilled for us so that we could be forgiven. And God wants to extend his hand to you this morning, and he wants to save you, but you have to call on him. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to do that because communion, this, this thing that we're about to do, is for believers only. If you're not a believer, don't partake of this. It doesn't mean anything to you. But you can come become a believer right now. You can change your eternal destination. You can go from being dead to becoming alive. The Spirit of God will come inside of you. And that's what God wants for you. So if that's you, you just call out to Jesus right now. And you say, Jesus... I confess my sin to you, that I've blown it. Probably don't even recognize all that I've done, Lord, but I have sinned against you, and I ask you to forgive me this morning. And I want to give you my life. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to make you the Lord of my life. I believe that you died and rose again from the dead for me. So here I am. Take me. In just a prayer of sincerity like that, the Lord will come into your heart and he will make you new and he will wipe your sins away. So if you prayed that prayer, praise God. You're in the family of God. For the rest of us, that we would just stand before the Lord here in this, this moment and we would just evaluate ourselves and then we would respond as the Spirit leads us. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's just, just being thankful Maybe you've forgotten to thank God for all that he's doing in your life and you've slipped into this place of not being grateful to him. We'll return to that this morning. Let's just allow the spirit to move in our hearts as we uh, now just take these next few moments to remember what he's done in the sending of his son. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.